my dad would cook for him and all the guides lived in this little we called it the mouse mahal i mean it was just a little rundown shack I'm kind of an addictive person if i ever get on drugs i feel like it's over <laughs> everybody thanks for tuning into this one it's been a little absence Ira's been on vacation and we've had a couple of our guests that have uh we didn't want to interview them about their livelihood and their livelihoods got in the way of our damn interview so unfortunately we've had to reschedule a couple but this one here I know I'm super excited about Jim G and Lottis is with us today and he has got a really interesting story hopefully something that will appeal to folks um in, in a couple different classes of, of folks might be listening to us whether you whether you're, you know, kind of in your in your day job, or whether you've moved on to the next level of what you're wanting to do, or or maybe you've moved on to a level past that, and, and you're doing, um, you've taken that next step, which is kind of what what Jim has done. He's kind of seen a bunch of different levels of of his industry, and it's kind of an interesting viewpoint from uh, from anybody's point of view. So I think we're really excited, Jim. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to, to visiting with you guys and kind of talk through some of this stuff. Ira, how, how start start with this, Ira? How how did you meet Jim and kind of how did that start? Well, um, back when I was in college and undergrad and in vet school, uh, I was one of those guys who uh, who had a job and and actually didn't just. Uh, take loans or sponge off my parents for everything. And, and I worked like, you know, 30 to 40 hours a week at Foster's Bass Pro Shop in Columbia, Missouri, counting minnows and, and worms. And I think we talked about this a little bit before, but, uh, you know, selling stuff. I worked mainly on the fishing side, a little bit on the hunting side. And Jim worked there too. And so we both were, uh, we both were in the worm counting business when we first became friends. All right, yeah. so that would have been when? Man, Jim, what? That would have been back in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, I was going to say, I think early 90s, you know, probably around 90, 91. That's been yeah, that's a minute. Right. <laughs> yeah, more than that, isn't it? Yeah. Crazy to think we're both still uh, still kind of in the hunting world, and we got, our, we got our start at liquor guns and ammo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing, you know, thinking back to some of the other folks that we worked with there too, but there's a bunch of them that, that are still in the industry. You know, there's folks that are yeah. you know, key executives at, at Bass Pro and, you know, a handful of other companies and, and rep groups. And, and really, it, it's been interesting to, not, see, to see how all those people. Profit, you know, big uh, not-for-profit. VPs or whatever, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of different spinoffs in the hunting world that, that started there. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, so, but when you guys talk about you worked at Foster's Bass Pro, that was like a franchise. That was like a, a, an individual location back when they used to do that more at Bass Pro. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like, oh, I worked at Bass Pro and I was a shoe in. You guys were working as like hourly employees at a Bass Pro location. Yeah, yeah. So the way the way that Johnny Morris used to to do that is he had a distribution business called American Rod and Gun. And as a independent dealer, if you bought a certain amount of goods from American Rod and Gun, 
in a certain amount of Bass Pro branded product, um, you could actually use the Bass Pro name, even though you weren't part of the franchise. So there's uh, there was a handful of those those independent uh, Bass Pros around, and this this was way back before uh, you know there was an expansion into the retail you know space and the multiple Bass Pros. It was mainly just the catalog business back then. So. So yeah, I mean, it was nothing. It was nothing like what you think about today. You walk into Bass Pro, and they got the taxidermy mountain and the big aquariums and all that. I mean, we might have had a, we might have had a skull or a set of antlers. Someone whacked off a, a deer hanging on the wall, and our only aquarium was in the meadow tank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, might have had some crawdads in there. <laughs> Jim, did you go? Where did you go to school at? What what was your so what was your path after high school to get you to Bass Pro there? So I was uh, going to the University of Missouri uh, here in Columbia and uh, studying uh, for a psychology degree, and you know start actually started working at, at another local gun shop called the Powderhorn Gun Shop for a guy named Lee Brandcamp, and. Uh, Worked there uh, as I was going through classes, trying to, to pay my way through tuition and, and rent and, and beer money and, and all that stuff a college kid needs. And uh, got the job there at the Powderhorn and, you know, was mounting scopes on guns and, and fletching arrows and tuning bows and just doing all the stuff you do in a pro shop. And uh, Powderhorn was a, a little bit smaller business and, and, uh, you know, when, when Foster decided to build a bigger retail location, kind of step up and create a little more opportunity, um, a little bit bigger store, I, I moved over there and started working for Tom Foster and um, continuing to, to work my way through school and, and uh, you know, eventually ended up managing that, that Bass Pro Shop. Uh, by the time I graduated, I was managing it and had a great, great team of employees there. And we were doing some, some great business, um, split pretty evenly between firearms and, and fishing and did a really good, uh, used gun business, bought and sold guns, traded guns, um, you know, had, had a great little archery pro shop there and, and really strong fishing department. And, um, it was, it was, really a, a great place to learn about a wide variety of products. Um, you know, anytime you're engaged with customers and they're asking questions and, and you've got to be able to find those answers, it's like you're, you're constantly, you know, expanding your own knowledge by helping customers make the right decisions. You could tell, man. And, oh, go ahead, Ira. And, you know, we had a really cool mentor. I mean, guy that owned it, Tom Foster, he was a, old ex-army guy and and a chain smoker and man he was he was hardcore and uh he didn't cut anyone any slack but at the same time um he was somebody that led by example and and you know had kind of a just a he was one of those guys that was hard on the edges but soft in the middle and just i always enjoyed jacking around with tom and kind of you know if 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 you didn't kind of stand up to him a little bit, he'd run all over you. But the guy deep down, he was a, he was a good dude. Wouldn't you say, Jim? Yeah, definitely. And, and really taught me a lot. You know, he was, uh, you know, great, you know, small business owner and entrepreneur and, and taught me a lot of things and, you know, really trusted me to, 
to kind of help help grow the business and take it in some different directions and and i really enjoyed uh working for him and in my time there well you know you hear you hear so much about you know today people talking about well you know it, it's all about the people and you got to find the right people to put in the right positions and and it, it just coming from somebody who was always you know had, who had always worked for people or you know come from school kind of being a student and then going into being an employee is like you hear all that stuff and it's just like, okay, okay, whatever. Well, then you get out in the real world and you start either doing your own, doing your own business or, or working with folks. And you know, it, it, the people do make all the difference. I mean, how many, how many companies you just look around in our industry, on our industry, but you know, it doesn't take, it doesn't take long to get attached to somebody at a company when you call in or you email in and there's people that know what's going on. It, you know, it just makes a huge difference. So guys that are learning on the job, you know, that already have a good knowledge base and are learning on the job, I feel like are invaluable in, in any business. So I'm sure that, I'm sure that that, you know, obviously Jim, that set you up for future success, but it just seems like today, sometimes people are in positions throughout a bunch of different, different industries that, that might, you know, they have a degree or they have a, you know, whatever, a background of, of education in, in a certain field, but man, it's tough to, it's tough to find people and, there's no replacement for going out and doing that and being an outdoorsman or being a whatever you're doing. And uh, that definitely makes a huge difference. Yeah. Joe, while we're, while we're kind of in this, this uh, era that we're talking about our college days and stuff. So Joe, you spent some time with Jim and you know how organized he is and how detail oriented he is and all that stuff. Well, back then we all thought Jim was a little bit crazy because I mean, the guy was like just, I mean, we're all, we're all like pretty feverish about killing stuff and hunting and stuff, but I'm telling you, Jim had an extra gear in there and we're all like, man, I don't know. This guy's a little bit out there, man. He's a little bit wacky. I mean, he starts <laughs> shooting stuff and he just kind of lose it. And we were like, man, we all kind of like that, but I think this guy's off on a different level. Funny. You know, well, I think having that passion for, the sports and in the gear and the products has really been kind of a, you know, a theme that, that helped me throughout my, my career in the industry. You know, I've always believed in, in, you know, building teams of people that are all passionate about the types of, of work that they're doing. And, you know, that's, that's served me really well over the years and, and, you know, had some, been fortunate enough to have some some extremely good employees on my teams at different companies and um, the one common thing I can look back and, and say is you know most all of them you know had some some real passion for the sports and the categories that they were working within well you you're when you said he's organized and stuff iron like determined like I the organization deal is something you and me both lack in, and I think you're yes. worse than me, and you think I'm worse than oh, you. Oh, come on! You're pretty bad. Oh, well, I mean, I don't, I don't have any medals for organization on my wall, but we'll just leave it at that. I said we both suck, but, but <laughs> whenever I showed up up there to goose hunt, um. You know, I'd set up our spread, and Jim was adding to it. So for the people listening, we, I and I have a goose lease. Jim's been hunting with us. It's been a lot of fun, but I, I can only liken it to whenever I was playing football in college and we played against this guy named David Bass at Missouri Western. He was like the MIAA sack leader and he went and got drafted. He played for the Raiders and the Chargers among others. But I remember whenever I, the brief amount of time that I was on the field and I 
went up against him. He was a D end and I was like an H back and I went up to try to block him. And when I made contact with him, I was like, I, I don't belong here. Like this guy is on another level. When I showed up to our goose spread and I opened up Jim's trailer door and saw there was more flashing lights than a police station and shit. He had everything set up and plugged in and zip tied and like set up perfect. I was like, this guy's another level. So organization, passion, I've got a lot of passion, but I miss an organization. I feel like Jim's a good combination of both. <laughs> well, you, you have to be, if you're going to chase those snow geese, it's a gear intensive sport and you got to be pretty committed to it. And I think that's one of the things that, that really compelled me about it is, you know, it, it, you have to try to get better. I mean, those, those snow geese can be hard and you got to really bring your A game to be successful at it. And, uh, you know, I've tried to, to really use all the gear possible and, and, you know, take, take advantage of everything you can to, to help improve that success. And sometimes Joe, Joe and I, we use the small puke method. So we have like 30 full body decoys and we throw them in the back of a truck or in a sack or whatever. And then we figure out where we're going to, and we just kind of puke them out there and that's when you're unorganized you got to go with the small puke method well and then <laughs> and sometimes it's not only the snow geese you're battling against you know not to name any names but we had some guys that were hunting next to us and in fact we were partially set up on their property which they were fine with but they come in to hunt which is great and jim was like yeah the the neighbors are in they're going to be setting up over on the on the west side of the property so i don't think we'll really be affecting each other whatever no problem so i get there to hunt that next morning and jim called me as i'm driving in he said well um there was a change of plans i guess he said the guys are set up right next to us i'm talking we could talk to these guys they, they were set up so close i was worried about shooting that direction and in fact jim had the blinds turned away from those guys because we would have been raining pellets on them all morning we the geese we were killing some of them were falling in their spread their dogs were running into our spread snatching up dog, geese that we were killing yeah yeah well we still made a pretty good pile that morning we had a good we had a good hunt i i uh i it seems like snow goose hunting is one of those deals where you think you figure it out or you know the, the people who know enough about it know that you never really figure it out but but it is kind of fun to dial in and and reevaluate and change and i don't know it's kind of a chess game i and and so is and so are a lot of things in the industry but snow goose hunting definitely separates the separates the the you know, you can't just be lucky and kill snow geese very often. You got to be prepared. And I, and I think that's kind of how, you know, that's another kind of a segue into what I want to ask you about, Jim, is so, you, you know, you've carried that theme, obviously, throughout your life. But you started out in Bass Pro at, at, a, at a Foster's Bass Pro in Columbia. You're a manager there. Take me a little bit, and Ira, too. I know we've heard this story, but I want to hear it again. Take us a little bit through. So how do you go from there? to where you are now and you don't have to just tell it all in one breath but kind of start that journey where do you go from from foster's bass pro yeah so um you know i i by the time i graduated had my degree in psychology i realized i was making more money managing that retail store than i could go out and make with that degree so and i was having a great time doing it you know it was it was really you know what my passion was all about. So I decided I'd, I'd work to pursue uh, a career in the industry and, and realized I needed to move on to some, some bigger opportunities than what, what the, that local sporting goods store had. 
So I ended up uh, taking a job with a company called Sportsman Supply out of St. Clair, Missouri. And they were a, a fishing tackle distributor. And, you know, they, they hired me to, to come in and help manage the purchasing for all of the tackle, but also to expand and get them into fall goods. You know, they were only in fishing, but they wanted to be in hunting products as well. And, you know, they were a true two-step distributor. So they buy, buy products from the manufacturer and then sell those products to retailers that in turn sell them to consumers. So um, the two-step distributors, you know, they're, they're a bit of a dying breed these days, but there's still a few of them around that, that really cater to, to some of those smaller dealers. But anyway, moved on to that opportunity, um, learned a lot there, um, had another great mentor there, a guy by the name of Pat Robb, who's uh, no longer with us, but he, he certainly taught me a lot about the, the fishing side of the industry and, and, you know, started to get a little bit of exposure to sourcing product uh, from Asia. Um, really enjoyed it. it was some long hours. This is before I was married and, and I, I had a cot on my, on the floor of my office and ended up sleeping there and, and just, just really working hard to make that company successful and expand and, and, and really thrived on that success as it started to come. Um, but, you know, I also realized again, after a couple of years that, 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 that was somewhat of a limited opportunity, you know, there, there was more that I wanted to do. And at the time, this, this would have been getting into the, to the late nineties, um, Cabela's had a reputation as just being the premier retailer, premier business in the entire space. And, and, you know, everybody had great things to say about them and the, the quality of the people that they had out there in Sydney, Nebraska. So I set my sights on that. I decided, Hey, I want to work for those guys. They're the best. And, and that's where I want to be. And so I started to kind of leverage the relationships I'd made with some of the, the sales reps and, and other folks throughout the industry and, and said, hey, you know, um, put in a good word for me out there at, at Cabela's. I'd love an opportunity to go out there. And, um, you know, eventually I think enough of the, the right people must have, must have put my name out and, and finally got an opportunity for, for an interview and, uh, you know, ended up getting hired and, and moved out to Sydney, Nebraska and came on and, and started managing the camping category was the, the first area that, that I was in. And, um, you know, that, that quickly expanded into some other opportunities and some other categories and, um, you know, ended up managing, uh, you know, all the tents, packs, sleeping bags, luggage, cutlery, lighting, food processing, pet, you know, air guns, waterfowl, shooting accessories, you name it. There's just a bunch of categories that I had the opportunity to work with there and, um, you know, really enjoyed it and, and had a heavy emphasis um, in developing private label products. You know, Cabela's back in the day had, had you know, really good reputation for high quality products and, uh, got more exposure to sourcing, you know, abroad. And, you know, I think my first week on the job out there in Sydney, I, before I even showed up, they said, Hey, you better have your passport ready and, and get a visa to China because, because we're going. 
and uh, you know made a bunch of trips over to Asia and worked directly with factories and, and just uh, really learned a lot from them. Cabela's had an exceptional organization, the way that they uh, tracked sales and had some really good source tracking to, to help, help you understand what was moving the needle in the catalog presentations. And you could experiment with different drop dates and different promotions and and you know even different layouts and and but it was a, a real good knowledge of results that you know was was a great viewpoint into the end consumer's mind and how they reacted and I think one, I one thing Jim before you say too much more I'm sitting here thinking to myself you go to Nebraska as a camping specialist and all of a sudden you're in China I mean how does that like. <laughs> Did you ever sit there and you were like, what in the world? Like, I wanted to get a leg in with this. I mean, obviously, you didn't think about it too long. You got with it. But how does that go? Like, you just show up to China like, what's up? I mean, I mean, <laughs> what up, boys? I'm here to, here to have some General's Chicken. I mean, what? how does that go? <laughs> it, was a, it was a bit of a shock. Um, you know, the first, you know, again, I was young and single. And, you know, it was a big adventure. But, uh, you know. You know, had some people that, you know, you know, Roger Verholst was the guy that that had hired me. And, you know, he'd been to China um, a few times before. So, you know, he took me over and, you know, kind of showed me the ropes. It's not like they, they you know, put me on a plane and, you know, said good luck. You know, I traveled with some folks that had been there. And, and that was really part of the culture of Cabela's. You had great leaders that, that knew how to do things that, you know, helped teach the next generation how to do those things because the company was growing so rapidly. Um, you know, man, that's the way you moved up the corporate ladder there is you had to, to bring people underneath you and, and you know, train them up and, and get them, you know, to, be, to the level where they can perform the job you were doing. And then that creates an opportunity for you to move up. But, but man, those first few trips to China were, were really amazing. Um, you know, it was it was a neat experience. Um, you know, I've, I've probably been there more than, more than 20 times, um, quite a bit more than 20 and I've never done anything touristy. I've never seen the, you know, the great wall or anything like that. It was always, you know, just, just grind it out and work for, you know, 10 or 14 days and, you know, travel city to city, you know, every day by every mode of transportation you could imagine. But, you know, the thing that, that I found was being there working with, you know, the owners of the factories and the managers of the factories is what moved the needle. You could get, you could get so much done um, in developing products, you know, in, in a day or two with factory than you could, you know, and, th and that's back then is just when email was just first starting to be a thing and, and there was really no substitute for for working directly with with those people i mean it's it's in you know we have we have a lot of technology now and it definitely makes things easier but i don't think there's ever going to be a time that there's there's always going to be something to be said for being on location at times you know what i mean like now obviously we're talking going to china it's going to be easier to have a zoom call or whatever you got to do but i know like in our business better barnwood and, and i'm not likening to the chinese the chinese are far more advanced but we have a lot of Amish labor that we do some work with and like they live 15 mainly years. under 18. <laughs> yeah. Under, under eight, but they, they, 
they deal some do some 18 they got seven kids by then and 40 acres these kids are these kids are interrupting preschool to do better barnwood work but they i mean you could talk with folks um you know, it's, it's almost like a different culture and, and the Amish is, is almost a little bit different culture, but you know, um, there's a lot to be said for being on location. I can talk with them on the phone whenever they'll call me off the community phone. But when you show up up there on location and can work with them and get stuff done, it just seems like it's exponentially more that you can get done with somebody like that. And I'm sure the Chinese was the same way. I mean, it, you know, exponentially different, but it just seems like it just seems like even though we're so technologically driven and advanced right now, there is still a time when it, it, it makes a huge difference to be on location somewhere. Joe, he said they didn't, you know, it was when email and the internet and all that was brand new. I mean, when we're talking about the Amish, we're still talking about passenger pigeons, for goodness sakes. I mean, <laughs> we can't we can't even get a note to them unless you physically drive out there or get your passenger pigeon to fly there. So. My yeah, I mean, it was a long time ago, but it was it was still way better than that. My truck's got 110,000 miles on it, 97,000 are from driving the Amish and back. Yeah. yeah, well, it, you know, there's, you know, more than just communication, there were some other real benefits by being there and seeing your product being made and, you know, all the, the workers that are on those lines, whether they're, you know, cut and sew line or, you know, maybe assembling a, you know, meat grinder or whatever, um, you know, to really be able to pay attention to the quality and these folks see you there looking at stitch lines, looking at, you know, the, the quality of how they did the, you know, this corner or the zipper or whatever. And then they know, hey, when I'm running something that says Cabela's on it down this line, I better pay attention because that, you know, that, that crazy guy from the U.S. Might, might come over here and start yelling if he doesn't like the quality. So, you, you know, not, not that we were harsh on them, but I think they're, you know, just being there and them knowing that you're looking, that you're paying attention, made a big difference in, in maintaining, you know, high quality products. But how were those factories over there? I'm trying to get an idea. I mean, you walk into those factories, I mean, are they just e enormous? Oh man, there's, there's all different types of factories that, that I've worked with. And, you know, it's more than China, you know, I've, I've you know, worked in, in Korea and Vietnam and, um, you know, all, all over the place, um, Sri Lanka and, and, you know, a bunch of different countries, but, but yeah, there's some of them are great big and some aren't, some are, some are pretty small shops. You know, it's, it's not like we were necessarily running the biggest production runs of things, you know, on earth. I mean, there were some pretty, pretty specialized high quality products that we did. And occasionally you need to, to work with a little bit smaller, you know, factory to, to get that done. But, um, you know, one one thing I found very interesting was, you know, the the culture of other nationalities of people that owned or operated facilities in China. So I worked with a lot of Korean folks that that managed factories in China, a lot of Taiwanese folks, um, some Japanese as well. Um, and it and it's really I think been recently that you know the generations of Chinese that have been you know, educated to the level to, to understand, you know, how a facility needs to be set up and run or just there now where you're starting to see a lot more, you know, Chinese managed China factories. And, you know, it, it's, it's been a common theme, you know, but, but you, you have to, to learn to work with a lot of different nationalities of 
people and you know i just generally try to treat them all with respect and and dignity and and let them make money too you know we're all in business to make money and you can't you know squeeze every single penny out of someone you know the the best best factories i've dealt with were ones that were making really good money they were profitable we were profitable and and you know we grew together and they liked the business and we liked it. And that, that's the best type of partnerships to have over there. Well, well, it seems like that has to happen though. Like, and I was actually talking with a guy today who actually called me and said, he listened to this podcast, which blew me away. Um, it's a guy that has helped me on a bunch of stuff as I've been going forward here, but uh, he's an older gentleman. And he, he and I were talking about the importance of um, how in the most successful business relationships, there's not just one winner you know um and, and it just seems like anytime you want longevity or true success you know if me and jim are doing a deal you know jim jim might be winning bigger than me or i might be winning bigger than him but we both have to get some sort of value or some sort of win from it or else that's gonna be the last time jim and i do business together we might have the best idea or the best potential ever but you know where i'm at i'd rather make 10 cents 10 times than than 30 cents one time you know um and it just seems like that's a common theme and that's what you're saying too Yep. Yeah, definitely. So, so you go, so you go through that and you're, you're, you're doing this, you're overseas and how does that kind of go from, so you're doing that whole product development thing overseas and, and you're streamlining the process for a lot of these, uh, these, oh, you know, private, private label brands. Where do you go? Where do you go from there? Where does your career go from there? So, so yeah, I stayed with Cabela's for um, oh, I think eight eight or ten years, and uh, you know, eventually had some some kind of personal personal things that came up and really got me motivated to to move out of Sydney, Nebraska, and get back to you know Central Missouri area. You know, still had a lot of family and friends in the area, and and just just needed to get back and and kind of reconnect. So. Ended up uh, leaving Cabela's back in, I guess that was 2007, and uh, uh, came back to Columbia, Missouri, and ended up getting an opportunity to uh, go to work for a company called Battenfield Technologies that the Potterfield family uh, owned at the time, uh, same folks that, that still own Midway USA. And uh, Battenfield was, was a, a company that had a handful of different brands of shooting accessories. So Caldwell, Wheeler, Tipton, Frankfurt Arsenal, bunch of, bunch of really good accessory brands. Um, but anyway, I went to work for them uh, in a marketing capacity back in 2007 and kind of worked my way up, um, you know, in the company there. And uh, eventually the family, you know, I think got a little bit, disinterested in the business or just, just wasn't as actively involved in it and uh, decided to go ahead and sell the business. And that would have been back in 2012, I believe. And uh, company, uh, private equity company, uh, Clearview Capital came in and acquired the company back then. And they allowed myself and a couple of the other senior managers to invest right along with them in the ownership of the company. And that was really my first exposure to private equity. I didn't understand what it was all about, how it worked. I just knew, hey, the company that I've been working for has got new ownership and, you know, they're 
they're going to allow me to put some money in and become a percent owner. And that, that sounded like a great opportunity to me. Um, so, so I did that and, you know, we'd, we'd really, I guess, refocused the business over the, the few years leading up to that and, and put a lot of effort into product development teams and engineering. And again, I was trying to, to really take my passion as a user of these products to try to find ways to design products that worked better to solve the needs that I had uh, when I was participating in, in the shooting sports. And it wasn't so much about development where you'd, you'd look at, you know, the competitors and what were they building and what were their prices. It was more about, hey, I'm out shooting and, you know, I, I need to be able to do this or, you know, in a hunting situation, I need a rest that'll do this. So it was really you know, I guess, guess what I'd call market gap analysis. And we focused our development heavily on those market gaps and just really started seeing some exceptional growth. We had some great engineers. We built an awesome team there and, and uh, you know, did some really good product development work. You know, again, traveled a lot, you know, throughout Asia and, and sourced products there. And, and uh Anyway, that, that company grew really well. And, you know, the whole idea behind private equity is they own companies, they grow those companies and eventually resell them. So in pretty short order, in about two and a half years, the company had grown enough to make a, the next sale compelling. So we, we ran through a process and marketed the company and, and sold it. And Smith & Wesson ended up being the company that came in and acquired it. And that would have been around... 2014. And Smith & Wesson's large publicly traded uh, gun manufacturer. Um, some great, great folks we got to, to work with and meet there. And we really turned Battenfeld into uh, the accessories division of Smith & Wesson. So kind of took everything we were doing currently under all those brands and added a lot of Smith & Wesson branded product and Thompson Center product and in a whole variety of things and, you know, did, had done some nice acquisitions along the way and, um, you know, was, was a lot of fun, but it was neat with Battenfield to be able to see that company go from a family ownership structure through a private equity ownership period, and then to be an entity of a public traded company um, on the back end of that. So to really see the three primary ownership structures or phases with the, the same company and all the changes and, and you know, is, is the leader of that company throughout those phases, you know, the different challenges that that put on the business and different opportunities as well. Um, so I think that, that gave me a pretty unique perspective on those different ownership models, which um, ultimately kind of led me to my current path that I'm on now, um, being partnered with Clearview Capital again and and looking to to invest in other other businesses so so how do you okay so that that's so basically what you just did in the matter of a few minutes was take us through you know several decades of get entering the industry in the most in, in you know on the on the entry level working through the industry but not just through the industry but through the company so correct me if i'm wrong here but you you go in at a you know at a at a normal position at bass pro at, at a bass pro shop um there in columbia and you work your way up to management and then you go start in cabela's um you get started in cabela's at a depart you know running kind of a department 
or working within a department, running a department, then you kind of go um, a little more to the product development side, management side. Um, you take that onto um, a couple different other companies that that grow, and and then you buy in ownership wise, invest in the company, and, and then kind of stair step that up um, to where you're at now. Which which can I classify that that as like private equity? You you are the private equity company now, correct? Um. I'm partnered with private equity company, you know, we're, we're partnered with them in, you know, in the businesses that we acquire and, and help run those businesses. Um, so technically, you know, we formed uh, an LLC called Vertical Brands. And so I guess on paper, I'd be the, the CEO of Vertical Brands, but then I also hold executive you know, titles at all the different businesses that, that we own and operate, you know, in partnership with Clearview. So, so when you go look for a business though, and I mean, I, you know, not that anyone's asking for you to divulge every single thing that you, that you're looking at here, but when you go find a business, Jim, um, it has to be a business in my mind, picking a business to, you know, to acquire, there has to be some things that you can, improve upon through, you know, what y'all are able to do and, and take that vertical, but, but it can't be, you know, it's not like you guys are, I would assume it's not like you guys are buying an old junk house trying to completely redo it. You know, it's like you guys are trying to improve and stream on a few things, but how do you select, how do you go about selecting the companies that you're looking to acquire? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a great question. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of stuff to unpack there, but um, how do you talk I guess, one? I know that I know there's a lot to it, but how do you even begin yeah, to think about yeah. it? Well, I guess the the vision that I had with vertical brands was I, I'd seen what success looks like, you know, with Battenfield. I knew the things that it took to really move the needle with that company and create some some awesome financial results over the years. And you know, it was you know, it was really about the people, you know, we built great teams of people that were passionate about what they did and gave them the right tools to do their jobs. And, and, you know, my management style is to give, you know, hire good people you believe in and give them the autonomy to do their job. And so, you know, I'd seen the success that that can drive. So my, my thought was, well, I want to go out and, and use the same formula to create success with, with other businesses that, that, you know, again, I can take part in the ownership of and, and the profit as, as they, they grow and transact. So, um, you know, the vision that I had was let, let's go out and invest in some companies that have really good brands. You know, we want to be the top one, two or three type brands in whatever niche category it is. I don't want the 19th best, you know, cutlery brand that we've got a fight and claw our way up. You know, we want, we want really good quality brands, but, you know, they can still be, you know, fairly small companies. You know, we, you know, one of the things that I see is, is if you can bring, you know, an emphasis on, on high quality product development, um, on really good, you know, marketing approaches, understanding, you know, how to sell online, understanding, you know, how, how to partner on, you know, with, with the Amazon and, and, you know, have good price integrity and good quality listings. And, you know, I've just, we've seen and we've learned the things that really 
you know, move the needle, you know, having good ERP systems and good access to, to data. So a lot of the companies we look at, they don't have all these, these assets. What they've got is a really good brand, some good products, but if we can bring more of these resources to them, you know, through investment, I mean, that's one of the, the things you're doing with private equity is your job is to put that money to work to grow businesses so, you know, when they eventually transact again, you know, you, you've made your profit there. You know, we're not trying to, you know, harvest the annual profits out of a business. We're trying to invest heavily in it. So, so again, my, my vision was to bring these additional resources, these, these market insights to understand, you know, how to identify these, these gaps of, of the users of the products and develop you know, targeted products, you know, high quality stuff to fill those gaps. And that's, that's really been a successful, you know, theme throughout, you know, what I did at, at Cabela's and, and at Battenfeld and, and what, what we're doing now. So, you know, it's kind of, I guess you have to understand that basis to then understand, you know, how it is we target companies, which, which was really your, your question. But so for us, you know, we're looking for the, you know, the good brand where we love opportunities where the current owners and founders of a business want to continue on and partner with us in, you know, having an ownership stake. And, you know, that's one of the beauties of the model we have with Clearview is, you know, everyone's invested alongside one another. So the a founder of a business, you know, maybe it's Higdon Outdoors. So you have John and Ben Higdon, you know, they're, they're equity owners, you know, myself and my two partners, you know, have an ownership stake. Clearview has an ownership stake. Our, our, you know, investment is all the same. You know, there's not different classes of stock. It's, it's all the same. And so when one of us profits, we all profit. And what that does is really aligns our interests. We're all pulling in the same direction and, and have the same vision and, and makes for, for a lot better partnership and, and more likely to succeed, you know, as we, as we invest in these businesses. Well, when you, when, when we were hunting the other day and we were talking, Naira, I want to come around to you on this, but you know, I don't know firsthand a lot of things, but I do know that, you know, with Higdon outdoors and Mo Marsh being a company within that, within the Higdon family there, um, you know, what's changed for me as an, you know, a contractor through Momarsh since Vertical Brands has taken over has been nothing. Literally, it's a, it's been a seamless transition that's been only positive. And, and the thing that's crazy about that is you hear so many people that are like, well, so-and-so bought the company and then we lost that person. We lost this person and we're doing all this stuff different. And like, one thing I really, <clears throat> I really admire about your company is it's like you guys are able to apply your principles without taking the identity away from the company. And that's, I feel like really tough. Uh, and a lot of people fail to do that, but it's, it's crazy how you're able to allow the, the flavor and the style and the brand and the, and the heartbeat of the company continue remain the same with these extra places. You guys aren't changing the identity. You're changing the back end, And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's culture is, is how I describe it. I mean, we, you know, the culture of any particular company or brand is kind of what made it successful and attractive to us in the first place. You know, again, we're not buying, you know, a turnaround fixer upper company. You right. know, we're buying companies that are, you know, have good 
historical growth and and have potential and man they can be missing you know any any number of ingredients to be able to take them to the next level but that's where we come in to help knock those barriers down to, to invest in in the people and the systems that that they need but um, but yeah, you have to preserve that culture. And I've, I've, you know, seen a lot of acquisitions in the industry that didn't do a good job of that. And, and, you know, companies don't, don't perform as well frequently under, under new ownership. And, you know, that's when we're talking to owners of businesses that we're, you know, trying to partner with, you know, we, we meet with an awful lot of people that we don't, don't get a deal done with. But, you know, that's one of the things I can, you know, look at them and tell them is, hey, we believe in preserving that culture, protecting that brand and making it even stronger. And, you know, I invite those folks to talk to the current businesses that we're partnered with, talk to these, these owners that, that we've worked with for a few years and, and have them tell you what it's been like to, to partner with, with Clearview and with Vertical. And, you know, I think that that reputation is what opens a lot of doors for us. Well, you, you sat there and you look at like, when we were in the, in the blind, you know, we were talking about, I don't even remember but this and that, and this part of this business and this part of that business. And, and I made the comment, I think, it, you know, um, I said, well, I don't understand why such business would do something that way. Or is that, is that division of that business necessary or is what they're doing? And you said, you know, it might or might not be, but that's part of that company's culture. So what we're going to do is go in here and change and streamline this process and that process, we're not going to get worried about this because that's woven in, kind of woven into the company fabric and that's doing really well. So we're not going to upset the apple cart really on something we don't need to. We're going to focus all our energy into something that really we feel like we can see a big gain from. So I just think, I think so many people get hung up and myself included, you know, get hung up on the little stuff like, well, God damn, I'm own part of this. I'm going to come in here and we're not doing this because that doesn't make any sense. It just seems like in a successful acquisition, there's just a really good balance. And it seems like it's really tough for people to find that balance. And you guys seem to have been able to. Ira, you've, you sold, you know, obviously you sold your company to Higdon and then now Higdon's working with Vertical and Clearview. So you're still a remaining largely, you know, involved in all that stuff. How has it been um, from your view, working with, working with Jim and his company on the Momar side? All right. I've been quiet for too long. So <laughs> I got a few things I want to backtrack on. This son of a buck. But, uh, I mean, every time I ask him a question, he, he just completely goes off on another tangent. But go ahead. Let's not upset. Well, I'm just, you know, I'm just a little bit reserved. I'm kind of a reserved person. Yeah. So I've just been sitting yeah. here listening and, uh, you know, taking it all in. But, First time uh, ever. You but must no. have bad service. <laughs> yeah. So, so first off, uh, when it comes to, you know, corporate equity purchasing, um, I think Jim and them have it hundred percent right. And I've seen it a lot in the veterinary space where, uh, you know, I think that the corporations have learned a lot over time here where initially, you know, they'd come in with a cookie cutter approach. They'd say, here's your new program. Here's the way we're going to be doing things. Here's our new pricing. Here's our new whatever. And guess what? And we're talking about a service industry, right? This isn't a, hey, we're going to go make a widget and sell it to the world. It's the service industry. So you come in there with a heavy hand like that and you just hammer everybody 
and and you mandate what the changes are going to be, guess what you got two weeks later? You got a huge red spot on your bank account and nobody in the building. And uh, they tried that for a while, but it didn't take them too long to figure out that that was definitely not the way to to try to, you know, purchase equity in the veterinary space or anywhere for that sake. So now we tend to see a lot more of the same type of thing that Jim's talking about, you know, with uh, joint venture, uh, joint venture efforts where, you know, private equity will come in and purchase some of the business, maybe all of it uh, if need be, but they're definitely not going to come in and disrupt that culture that's made that business be a success. They're going to try to preserve that. Um, focus on the margins, focus on the backside, let that clinic still be autonomous, let the people still, you know, have the things that they love about their job and uh, let all that continue to be successful. And I think that, you know, that's definitely the way that the parts corporate America that I've seen that are that are successful in today's world, that's the way they're approaching it. But um, I want to wind the clock back a little bit and talk about Jim and how he was instrumental in the growth of Momarsh and, and, you know, opening my eyes to our little industry of the hunting world, because, you know, Momarsh started off, a lot of you may not even realize this, but, you know, I started Momarsh back in 1998 and all we did was domestic um, production of fiberglass layout boats. So, in the beginning, that was all we did. And then we started, you know, doing a little bit of metal fab machine shops for transoms. And then and then we had some little old lady sewing up blinds for us, you know. And uh, Ira was bending all the bars and putting in the little nylon bimini top inserts and all this stuff. It was all 100% done here, grassroots, domestic, uh, boots on the ground stuff. And of course, Jim being a hardcore end user, and I believe, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't you also the, the head hunting buyer at Cabela's? The what? The hunting? Weren't you the hunting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, um, you know, over, I was over some of the hunting categories there, but, uh, you know, it, it kind of evolved over time. I kind of took on more and more of the, the category managers um, over the years. So by the time that I'd, I'd left there, yeah, hunting, hunting accessories was one of the categories that I was managing. It's all, it's all yeah. relative, Ira, because I'm like, man, I own a badass rental property. I want to tell everybody. Jim's like, oh, yeah, just I forgot to mention that I was kind of the, <laughs> I was kind of the guy, but no big deal. Go ahead. Yeah. So then he calls me and he's like, Hey man, we got to get your boats in the Cabela's catalog. We got to start selling these through Cabela's. And I'm like, Oh man, no, you know, they're, they're bulky and fragile and there's not that much margin and they're a pain in the butt. And he's like, no, we can figure it out. You know, I'd really like for you to, you know, put together a program for us. And I'm like, whatever i don't really think it makes any sense you know we were all dtc and like jim said this was back before the days of the internet so it was mainly word of mouth and so and so had one here and there was a duck boats forum back then and so a lot of the activity took place there but anyway jim talked me into getting the boats into cabela's we did that we figured out a, a boxing method and a crating method and a drop ship deal and all that stuff and so he was very instrumental in letting people outside of Missouri or our very, very small community know that, hey, there is this high-end fiberglass 
sneak boat that's a badass unit and so that's that's cool and that's a tie between jim and momars and me and then step forward a little bit you know action products back in the day had a five position ratcheting seat that you set on the ground and you could change the angle of the back and it was it was a pretty cool deal so i went to action products and i said look your seat's great it work awesome in our boats but it's open cell foam and if it gets wet it weighs like 75 pounds would you please put some closed cell foam in this thing so that it doesn't weigh so much and they're like uh no we we can't do that and i'm like oh man just please you know do something to make it waterproof either closed cell foam or a plastic bag or you know heavy duty anyway they they couldn't do it so i'm like man i'm like man this is terrible so jim was working at battenfeld at the time and we were talking and he was like well i think i could get that made for you and i'm like okay well heck let's let's take a stab at it so Jim, again, was the guy that sourced the Invisalounge for me the first couple of times that we did it. So that was our first non-domestic, imported, non-boat product was the Invisalounge. And Jim had his hands on that again. And and we sold that to, to Bass Pro and Cabela's and Rogers and wherever. And then, uh, and then I was like, you know, man, I'm going to make up a wish list of items that I'd really like to see us bring to the world. And I just literally sat down with like 20 pieces of paper and started spewing out ideas onto these pieces of paper. And I brought him to Jim and he's like, oh man, you know, I, I don't know. We're just, you know, there's a lot going on and we're not making that much money on this thing. And we're kind of shifting a little bit. So I'm going to hook you up with this other guy. And he hooked me up with this other guy and uh, I went to him and basically that was in like 2011 ish. And by 2013, that was when we came out with the InvisLab and the Chair, And then obviously it grew from there. So again, you know, Jim's had his hands in and out of Momarsh for a long time. And then, uh, you know, when, when I was kind of being forced uh, to, to consider selling Momarsh because I kept moving the needle on Kelly, my, my lovely wife. And I'd say, well, when it gets to this amount, we'll sell it. And then it'd get there and I'd be like, and she'd be like, well, we got to sell it. And I'd be like, well, let's wait till it does this. And then, so finally I was forced to do something. And uh, Jim and the private equity group were, were interested, but man, it was just so emotionally close for me that, that I just, you know, I wanted it to be kind of quick and quiet and I wanted it to stay in our community, not private equity. So I sold to the Higdon brothers and once again, Jim got his hands on it. And so now Vertical and Jim have purchased Higdon and Momars and all that. So, I mean, no matter how hard I try, I just can't get away from crazy old Jim Giannalatis. And it's been yeah. great. Well, man, that, you know, I guess one thing I got to give a little, little credit to John, John O'Rourke. He was also like instrumental in getting those boats in, in Cabela's there and, you know, had, right. had some vision for that. But, uh, but man, it, it, it just really is one of the themes that I believe in strongly is in this industry, it's really not that big. You know, you have to treat everybody with respect and, and, you know, just just be good to folks in your business dealings because the the tables turn and change there's folks that you know maybe they used to be an employee of mine and then i end up 
in a different position and they end up in a different position and I'm got to try to buy a company from them or I might have to try to sell them a product. And, you know, if you burn bridges and, and don't treat people honorably, um, you know, you won't last long in this industry. So, you know, I think that's, that, that's an important, important lesson for sure. Yeah. Do you, Ira, what do you, what do you see the, I guess, I guess, so we're talking on the, on the acquisition side, what, what were some of the things that you did struggle with though? Like I know Jim, you tried to cut Jim out of your purchase, but he, he reached around and snatched it up and put more money in his pocket anyways. But uh, no, what, what do you see? What do you see as some of the things though, that like when you, when you sold the company, what, what did you struggle with as far as like, you know, what, what were some things from a, from a seller's point of view that you struggled with on a, on, on when you thought about selling to a, to another company? Well, you know, I mean, I've sold a lot of things in my life and most of them, I just was pretty, uh, I wasn't really connected emotionally to the sale of, of an item. So like, you know, Oh, this old trunk truck, I've gotten the better out of it. We're going to get rid of this thing. Oh, this hunk of junk over here. This idiot wants it. We're going to charge them a nickel for it and move on down the road. But selling Momars for me was really emotionally tough because it had literally been my identity for 20 years, you know. And so when when we were talking about selling it and I kept moving the needle on Kelly, um, even though I'd kind of promised her that, you know, I had a lot going on, man. I had bed clinics and hunting businesses and you know, outfitting businesses and something was going to have to go. And, uh, so my way of coping with that was, was probably, which was very unlike me, um, was probably not based completely on objective decisions, which normally I'm pretty by the numbers, take some time to think about stuff, make sure that everything pencils outright, make sure that I feel like I'm getting a very fair shake on the deal. So, and and that's been true of the veterinary businesses and, and other equity sales and other businesses and all that and, and real estate transactions. But with Momarsh, I was too close to it, man. I had I was too emotionally bound. And like I said, I wanted to get rid of it and I wanted to keep it within our community because that was really important to me. You know, our, our hunting community, I, I spent so much time and so much passion in there that I wanted to feel like it was still going to somebody that was a, a real part of that community. And, uh, you know, I probably, which is unlike me, I probably left some money on the table, but is everything in life, you just don't know what'll happen tomorrow or next week or whatever. So like there for a little while after I sold it and I say a little while, it was like 18 months, man. I mean, I needed medication. I was uh, yeah. really in. Hold on. I was I in a terrible aside. way. I have an huh? aside. You said something about, I don't know how I deal with it. I remember how you dealt with it. Fucking Dr. Well, Williams and fucking oh. Dr. Royal. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. I was a beer drinker before I sold Momars. And immediately after that, I became a whiskey drinker. And, <laughs> uh, and, and so, yeah, no, man, it was terrible. It was really, really hard on me. And, uh, I'm happy that I'm still 
you know, able to be involved and, and considered to be some value to the deal. And, and, uh, that's great. And, you know, it's all come full circle, like the pressure's off now. So, you know, all the struggles and, and emotional distress and all that, that I had after I sold it, man, that's all kind of evaporated. Now I can, I can enjoy it for what it is and be thankful to be involved and, uh, do what I can to help out. So, so it's good. And, you know, I mean, honestly with the timing if i had kept it i probably which we we've sold you know some equity on our veterinary clinics and and habitat flats and other places now but uh i i would have had to have done that if i hadn't sold it when when i did because so many things have changed and it's gotten to be harder to make money harder to deal in the business environment harder to deal with you know state taxes on on interstate sales and all kinds of things that we just didn't have to deal with back then and uh you know we were a skeleton crew and so it was just a, a point in time where things were going to have to change no matter what and that was that was probably really a good time to do it i'm sure you see that some though jim like i mean you know in iris and obviously not to keep bringing up the fact that ira went completely around you and didn't say <laughs> me but um i uh no i mean the, the thing is though you know with mo marsh i just remember like we had a group a company group text you know there was ira and kelly and and josh and myself you know ira being the and kelly being an ownership and kelly being the person that was like guys you're supposed to do this you forgot about this and me doing the marketing stuff but like i mean when you look back at the what they what we what they mainly josh and ira and, and kelly were able to do you know with what they were doing. I mean, Josh was, you know, product guy, web guy, sales guy, part-time help babysitter, unload the truck guy. I mean, like everything. I mean, if you look at the business that they were able to do with what they had, you know, it only stands to reason that a company like Vertical Brands could help take them over the top. I mean, you know, I don't think people understand, especially in the outdoor industry, but in a lot of industries, how many brands that you're familiar with and you love their products are really operating on a shoestring budget or, you know, really getting creative about getting stuff done. It just, I'm sure you see that Jim, you know, you see these monikers or these brand names that, that everybody knows in certain industries. And when you peel it all back, a, a lot of times it's, it's a couple guys that really enjoy, you know, what they're doing in, in this industry. And, and it might not be as structured as what some people think. Yeah, that, that's, Definitely true. You know, you you run across you know a lot of different a lot of different people and businesses and and different approaches. Um, you know, one thing I try to do, you know, is I connect and and talk to a lot of folks and you know try to talk them into selling a company to me. I I really put myself in their shoes and think you know the the best thing I can do is give them really good advice on what's the best timing and best options for them as sellers of a company. And, you know, generally when I give them that advice, that aligns pretty well with, with, you know, vertical and Clearview being a, a great option for, you know, and, and a lot of it comes down to timing and, and, you know, a lot of times it takes investments in, you know, either people, inventory, um, equipment, you know, something that takes money, takes equity to grow to that next level. And a lot of times when, when it is a fairly lean budget and just a couple guys kind of shoestringing something together, it's difficult to step up and, and maybe hire a real 
you know, you know, focused salesperson, for example, a real first class, you know, national sales manager that knows how to move the needle and can get things done, man, that can be an expensive resource to bring on. So, um, in a lot of these smaller businesses, you know, they're, they're writing checks, you know, their personal accounts and, you know, mortgaging their, their, their homes and doing whatever they can. So their, their appetite to invest in those growth oriented uh, things isn't necessarily as high as what it's going to be with private equity. You know, private equity has got the fund. They've raised the money. The money's sitting here. It's, it's again, it's, it's the job of the businesses to put that money to work to generate growth. So, you well, know, that, another that, thing, Jim, I mean, you know, things like when Bass Pro, let's say, mandates, hey, here's our new ordering system. It's called some acronym. You don't even know what it stands for. And they're like, you can't place a retor- uh, an order or, or get a return or any of that unless you're 100% bought into the system. And by the way, it's all done by third party. And here's who you got to contact. And it's like, it's overwhelming for somebody that has no clue what they're talking about and you got to do that. And then you guys, you know, on the flip side, you're already familiar with that. You know how it works, you know how to implement it. You see the value in it, all that stuff. And we're like, uh, maybe we just shouldn't have Bass Pro as a vendor because it'd be easier not to do. I mean, really that's kind of sometimes what goes through your mind when you're dealing with some of these huge retailers and they're, imposing all these regulations on you which or or systems on you and you're like i I mean we're just barely getting the orders filled and out the door and then depositing the checks and we we don't even know what in the world those acronyms stand for you know (laughs) yeah yeah that that's it's definitely challenging to to do business with some of the biggest retailers out there and you know you, you know bass is just just one of them in our industry but you know, Amazon is, is the real wild card, you know, that, that business is ever evolving and it's not like you figure it out and get a formula that works and okay, you know, we, we know Amazon, we're, we're good at it, man. It, it, it's changes all the time and it's just such a huge marketplace that, uh, you know, you can't ignore, you know, if you've got good quality products, they're going to find their way onto Amazon, whether you're, you're selling to that person or not. So yeah, I think right. whether it's it's SPS commerce and doing EDI with with Bass or whether it's you know the kind of back end of, of Amazon or whatever it is, it takes it takes good teams of people to to execute at a high level and and you know take businesses and continue to grow and, and expand. So Jim, give me this from for some people that are listening to this that you know aren't they're not in the stage right now of where any anybody's wanting to acquire their company. So let's just say, for instance, you're talking to me. Um, I got plenty of stuff that nobody wants to buy, but let's just say, you know, all it's like a startup. All of a sudden you got a startup and then all of a sudden it's taken off. And then before you know it, somebody's approaching you to buy the place. So which I guess I can't say that because I've already sold a company, but what what is something that you would say when you're looking at these companies what is one mistake that you see folks make that costs them money, whether that's in an acquisition, whether that's, um, whether that's, you know, whatever it is, like whether, whether they're selling some equity, is it, is it like marketing? Is it, is it bookkeeping? Is it, is it, you know, accounting? What do you see as being a huge problem that 
that you would say to people like, Hey, if you guys are going to grow this business, make sure that you do this because this is where I see. And maybe you don't want to tell people because you want to buy it for a discount, but, but what is something that you see that, that you could offer some insight? Cause a lot of our, a lot of our listeners have startups and have businesses that they run, but I feel like sometimes we get so caught up in running our business that we don't run our business. Like, you know, I feel like I'm so caught up in keeping mine going that sometimes I don't get out of their way, you know? So what's something yeah. you see there? I, I think, I think just doing the things that it takes to grow and whatever, you know, and that's usually scary. Like it, you know, it takes money and a lot of times it's people in, and it's bringing on really a quality employees and, and people. Um, you just, you know, I don't ever run into someone that's like, wow, you know, I've got, you know, this overpriced sales guy, he really kicks ass. He does a great job, but man, I'm paying him too much. He's just a problem. I mean, good quality people, you know, pay for themselves. And I think a lot of times it's hard to justify, especially in, in the earlier phases of a business, you might have to hire someone that you pay more than you take out for your own salary in a business. I mean, it, you know, but those real A players are the ones that can move the needle and can open doors and help take you to the next level. And I think that's, that's true, you know, even within, you know, interdepartmentally within businesses, you know, again, hiring really good people underneath you that, you know, hopefully they're smarter and better than you, you know, and, and you know, I've, I've run into folks that, you know, get intimidated by putting someone too smart under them, like, oh, they could end up taking my job. Well, my goal has always been to have that happen. I want really good people under me to take my job because that's going to free me up to do something, you know, more, more important for, for the company. So I think that's, you know, whether it's, you know, a, a business owner that's trying to decide, uh, you know, who to invest in and, you know, do I get this bargain kind of person that's going to do it part-time or do I get someone that's, you know, going to be a real dedicated resource. And maybe it's a stretch. It's a real, you know, reach to try to pay them that salary that they need. But man, you just don't run across people that regret building a really good team. Right. Right. Ira, what would you, what would you say when you're, um, you know, like I said, you've been through a couple mergers now, or, or, you know, you've sold equity in, in companies. Um, What's something that is there anything you wish that you would have done different or more of, uh, you know, leading up to it? Or is there anything you wish you would have? I mean, it's kind of a weird question, but but is there anything you would have done differently um, looking back at it? Well, you know, if I hadn't been married, yes, but I don't know that that would have worked out any better. Um, I, I got a couple things. You guys pro both probably heard me say it. And I'm sure that that Brooke and, and Ben and some of the guys at Higdon get tired of hearing me preach it. But I always say, if you're not going forward, you're going backwards. So if you're not coming out with new products and you're not trying to keep moving that needle, especially with a company like Momarch that's small and known for innovation and 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 all that stuff, man, you got to keep swinging. And even if you have one that's kind of a pop fly or or a dud or whatever, um, that's okay. You're, you know, you just get back up there and take another swing. And so I think that it's, it's too easy and too many people rest on their laurels. And when you do that, you're somebody's in a, somebody's in a pasha. And so I think it's important that people do that. Um, and then the other thing that I think, and Jim touched on it, I think when it comes down to selling, Timing is a lot. So you got to think about things like 
your age, what else you have going on in your life. Um, and then you also have to think about the numbers because trust me, the purchaser is looking at that stuff. So, you know, when you're talking about profitability, there's a lot more to buying or selling a business than just how big is your name or what is the top line, you know, the, the most important thing, and Jim, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the most important thing to the seller is what's the bottom line and what kind of multiple am I getting on that? And where am I in my life? And then when you're the, when you're the purchaser, which I haven't been very much, um, you know, you're looking at, okay, so what's this thing making and what kind of multiple am I willing to pay for it? Thinking that I can grow it um whatever the case may be to obviously ultimately get a return on your investment and have have the least amount of headaches poured into it along the way um but from the seller's pers perspective i think timing it really is a is a big thing and of course you can modify your timing based on what's going on on the on the multiple side right so if there's a whole ton of private equity money in in the industry that you're in and it's really competitive and they're paying a premium multiplier well you might want to bump up selling a little earlier and then and then you know keep working on the backside. um or you know if, if money's pretty tight and the multiple's not great then really grind it out and, and give it three five however many more years you can try and drive that drive that growth of the company and try to drive your profitability so that when someone does come knocking you can show them something that's really appealing and impressive and uh and it's going to be something that they're willing to pay a premium for do you think that's fair jim yeah definitely i think you know i think you know we we talk about things in terms of multiples of ebitda in in the private equity world um so uh, essentially an earnings uh, metric and you know there's there's different ways to think about you know, partnering with, with different folks, if it's a hundred percent equity sale or a partial, partial equity sale, but, but yeah, we, we think about things as a multiple of that EBITDA and, you know, business based on what its growth history has been and, and really more than anything, what's the confidence that it's going to be able to continue to grow into the futures. What, what we care most about as a buyer, um, you know, it might be worth six, seven, eight, nine, you know, maybe even 10 times, EBITDA in, in our industry and the size of the company has, has a pretty big impact on that. A smaller company is going to generally have a smaller multiple because the, you know, they haven't been around and, and been through, you know, as much growth and persevered as much as a bigger company. Uh, and, you know, the bigger companies going to generally have a stickier brand and, and, you know, more sophisticated assets and going to bring a higher multiple, but um, you know, one of the things we really focus on is encouraging owners to think about, you know, you've got this, this first bite of the apple, if you will, when, when you know, we bring Clearview in and, and my team in and we take a percent ownership of the company. But if that owner founder wants to continue on, you know, they're not only getting paid, you know, that multiple today, you know, take some chips off the table, but then they're partnered with us. I mean, we're in it only for that second bite of the apples. So, you know, we've got a dollar in it. They've got a dollar in it. Clearview's got a dollar in it. 
we're all trying to grow that dollar. And that's how we're making our entire lick is off, you know, what did we pay today and what's it going to sell for down the road? So that, that owner founder can be partnered with us knowing, Hey, there's another big payday coming. Um, you know, that that's our whole, whole take on it. So balancing those two things along with the life events timing and, you know, maybe, you know, your belief about, you know, where capital gains tax might be headed or, you know, any number of other, you know, factors are all, all variables that need to be taken into consideration. So, so Jim, you're sitting here in kind of the, in kind of the stage of, of the outdoor industry where you, you know, you're, you're a guy that's kind of on the acquisition stage and you're, and you're, I could tell you're really passionate about acquiring, helping acquire these brands and, and taking them to the next level where, you know, but, but obviously this kind of journey has been successful and has afforded you the opportunity to, to enjoy doing what you're doing as well too. You know, that hunting, bass fishing, um, you know, traveling, going down to Florida, going to Lake of those arcs, whatever, kick, you know, fishing in tournaments. What does it look like for you when you're looking ahead here? Are you like, Hey, let's go hammer down. Or are you like, let's hammer down on some bass and not worry as much about work. I mean, what does it look like for you? And, you know, obviously I'm not asking you for a detailed life plan, but what do you, what does the future look like for Jim G and Lottis? And what does the future look like for, for where you want to go within the industry? Yeah. So right now we've got a handful of investments in, in the space. You know, we've got uh, a company called insight to design that, that's camping company, um, you know, great, leadership team there some some awesome products great brands there we've got got a platform uh, up in minneapolis called uh, <clears throat> revo brands and underneath revo brands is the the real avid uh, products so gunsmithing tools and gun cleaning products um, we've just recently invested in another business there outdoor edge cutlery um, so we're we're kind of Operating that is is part of that platform. Um, you know, we've got got the the Higdon business that, that we talked about. So we we've got quite a lot going on right now. So this this next phase for myself and and my partners in Vertical is to really try to accelerate the growth of these these platforms. Um, you know, do some acquisitions within those platforms. Um, you know, maybe look at another platform. We'd, we'd love to be in the fishing space and, you know, a couple other areas that we look at, um, the more general pet category, uh, you know, automotive, ATV, <clears throat> UTV type accessories. There's, there's other platforms that we're still considering, but, but definitely, uh, you know, focus on, on growing what we've got is out there, um, you know, my, my two partners, Adam and, and Jeff, um, you know, they're, you know, really instrumental to, to what we're doing in the growth. And, and, you know, we each kind of contribute in our own ways to each of the businesses. You know, Jeff is heavily focused on <clears throat> the marketing and, and, you know, e-commerce and Amazon strategies. Um, also a, a passionate product guy as well. My other partner, Adam, he's, uh, you know, really a, a great asset for, for all things operational. So he helps with, you know, ERP system implementations and warehousing strategies and, and 
you know, sourcing and just, just a whole variety of, of, of areas. And he's also passionate about product development. That, that's kind of one thing that's a common thread amongst all three of us is we all really believe in investing in, in product development and, and the teams of people to, to do an exceptional job there. So, so for us, you know, we also have one other company that's a little bit more mature within the platform called Nielsen Kellerman that does some uh, a few few different products, Kestrel instruments and ambient weather and, and a few different brands there. Um, so, you know, for me, ideally, uh, um, you know, we're gonna gonna help these businesses all grow and get great financial outcomes. Um, you know, as we exit a business, you know, that that creates a payday for us. Um, but we're also, you know, going to continue to invest in more businesses. So um, <clears throat> as far as how long to do that, I mean, I'm having a lot of fun with it now. Um, you know, I love uh, engaging on that product development side. I love the intellectual property side, you know, understanding the, the, the patent portfolios and, and, you know, strategizing on how to get additional patents, um, you know, the the HR side of it, the team building side, you know, I really enjoy that. So, and as long as it's it's still fun, um, I'm going to keep doing it. And it's oh, yeah. you know, it's it again. You you have to be passionate about you know these brands and businesses. You know, I'm not not out there dealing with you know ho hum stuff that's just item numbers on a spreadsheet. I mean, these are these are products that I that I care a lot about and and you know brands that that are close and, and near and dear to me. Well, I think that's, that's the goal. Like, you know, that's where I was going with that. Like, you know, the goal for me is to, to get to a point in time when I've, when I've got to where I want to be and, and you still love doing every day what you're doing and you're, you know, you're excited about pushing forward. And I don't know, I think that's just kind of in a nutshell what everybody wants to do. So, I mean, congrats to you for getting that far. And it's been a, it looks like it's been a hell of a journey, really. It's, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I, I look back and, you know, obviously I've enjoyed hunting and fishing, you know, as far back as I can remember as a kid and, you know, to, to be fortunate enough to be able to, to have a career, you know, within the industries, you know, really, really been amazing. You know, I couldn't imagine getting up and going to work and, you know, having no passion or care for the, you know, the business or the products that I was dealing with and, you know, that's, that's just a common theme that I see amongst people in the outdoor space. You know, we all, you know, have that common passion and, and drive that, that kind of bonds us. And I don't think that's necessarily there in as many walks of life as you would think. You know, there might be some folks that are maybe passionate about golfing or, you know, team sports or, or whatever, but you know, there, there seems to be something that's different and kind of hard to define about the passion for hunting, fishing, camping, the outdoor, you know, lifestyle that's just maybe not there if you design, you know, you know, apparel, casual clothing or something or blue jeans. I mean, how, you know, where can you really come up with the passion for that? And so that's one thing that I think is really unique and special about our industry. <clears throat> And, and I think that's, I think that's what keeps everybody in it. You know, like, it's just like, it just keeps everybody going. It seems like keeps that fire burning. And and that's why you see guys in the hunting industry where it's like, man, that dude's been in this a long time. And then, you know, they might sell a company and they might, you know, do whatever they might do this and that, but it, it but it continued, they're still, they're still there. It's still the same guys, you know, and that's, 
and I don't know. That's kind of interesting. I know Ira's. I know Ira's running to um, a deal here this evening. We got a dinner coming up, but I just want to say, Jim, thanks for thanks for coming on, man. I I've loved the conversation, and I think the insight. You know, we talk to a lot of guys that have had businesses, but we don't talk to many guys that have had a presence in Asia and and have developed the companies and and have acquired companies and all that. So, man, I appreciate you coming on. I've had a hell of a I've had a hell of a time. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun to talk about it. Oh, uh, it's yeah, Jim. I appreciate you coming on too. You know, I mean, when I when I think about our, Jesus, cry me the wind. I know it's windy out here. I had to step out to go to a track meet, but really, you know, we are lucky to be in the hunting community um, when it comes to you know the characters that are in it and the relationships that you build over time. And, you know, once you've been in it for 20 or 30 years, you just have so many friendships um, that are important. And, and those, you know, you have a shared bond that makes you be friends for life, really. Yeah. You know, we put this video or put this post up that we're going to have you on the podcast. And we got uh, some tough characters here commenting. Got Chris Osier, um, Eric <laughs> Forbes, and Phil Nordmeyer. So those guys said, what's up? All right. Yeah, that's that's good. Good crew, crew of guys there for sure. They uh, yeah, man, it's it's a small world. That's for sure. But no, Jim, I appreciate it. I'm going to holler at you when we get off here. I got some other stuff to ask you about. But uh, man, thanks a lot for coming on. I know you're busy as shit. And and whenever you're not working, you got a lot of stuff you'd rather be doing. But uh, I really appreciate you making the time. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. You have a good evening, Jim. My dad would cook for him and all the guides live in this little we called it the Mouse Mahal. I mean, it was just a little rundown shack. I'm kind of an addictive person. If I ever get on drugs, I feel like it's over. Because <laughs>